0: Would you open your Bibles, please, to Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we pause before any more words are said in terms of Bible study, and we just calm our hearts before you. We trust you with our hearts, the depths of who we are, the core of our being, our deepest thoughts you already know. We pray, Lord, that you'd settle us tonight in this place, settle us inwardly that we realize our God is on the throne. And all of the problems or issues or difficulties or concerns we face pale in comparison to your ability, your sovereignty, your might. Tonight, Lord, in this chapter, we're going to read about a very different kind of battle, one in which the enemy was very successful because it stopped the work of God dead in its tracks. Lord, it is this kind of a battle precisely that we must be aware of and cautious over. Strengthen us. Mold us together, Lord, relationally, as you have over the last several months and weeks. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in an exciting season in that Every week, we have new families coming to this fellowship. Last couple Sundays, people have come to Christ. We've seen so many make that decision, and new families who say, I'm a part of this fellowship now, and the services are filling up and getting really crowded. Parking is uh, hard to get around in the parking lot. I appreciate your uh, patience with that. A One man put it to me this way, there's new air we're breathing now. It just feels different. And as exciting as that is, a word of caution goes with that. We need to guard that kind of excitement because Satan has a strategy, you know. If you can't beat him, you join him. And uh, he's been successful at doing that through the years on many fronts. Uh, It happened in Nehemiah. Nehemiah had his share of opposition from the outside Sanballat, Tobias, Gisham the Arab, people who tried to fight against the work of rebuilding those walls, and they kept building the wall. And we saw last time we were together in Nehemiah that they'd have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, and they built, they fought, they watched, but they kept going. Chapter 5 is different. Not one bit of work is done on the temple. In this chapter, the work stops dead in its tracks. It ceases. Why? Because a different kind of battle is in the forefront. That is a battle that is internal, a struggle between themselves. They are at odds with each other and all of their energy is spent focused upon this battle. So tonight we want to look at that battle in chapter 5. I want you to understand what the local situation was in the first five verses. It's described. It's a financial crisis of sorts, but it becomes internal strife between people in the camp of Israel. After looking at the local situation, verse 6 and 7 show you the leader's reaction to the situation, and then the rest of the chapter is the loving solution to it all. Um, Somebody once said that, Uh, In a church quarrel, the devil is neutral, but he supplies ammunition to both sides. Now think about that. In a church quarrel, the devil is neutral, but he supplies ammunition to both sides. I've watched over the years uh, in other churches, in churches I've been a part of, that kind of situation. The devil's supplying ammunition. And uh, he will often join the ranks, and we don't even know it. Whenever God does a work, as excited as we want to get and should get, we should also be cautiously prayerful. One of the best examples is Acts chapter 6. You know the story. It says, In those days when the multitude of the disciples began to multiply, there arose a dispute between the Hebrew ladies and the Grecian ladies over who was being ministered at the table, the daily distribution. It was a problem between these widows, a conflict within the church. And it was during a time when there was growth and excitement and the enemy thought, okay, can't beat him, join them. It happened then, it happened way back here in Nehemiah. And it's happened ever since. I read a story from the Gospel Tribune about a church on the plains of North Dakota. True story. If you go there today, you'll see a dilapidated shack, weathered, glass broken, the steps sagging, paint worn off. You wonder what happened to this church. It probably just sort of outgrew that building, and moved on. No, it didn't, sadly. That particular church at one time experienced revival and growth, and it was a wonderful testimony to the community. But two leading families within that church body began to splinter, have conflict, divide. The church took sides. People began to attend less and less. And today, that dilapidated shack bears eloquent testimony to how division... Internal conflict can destroy the work of God. Now, with that, I want to show you this local situation. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters are many, therefore, Let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses, that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. Three problems that show this group of people was in a financial crisis. Number one, there was a famine in the land. And principally, this is... Why? The famine was a result of the need in Jerusalem to build the wall. The people that would normally work the vineyards and work the agricultural fields that lay outside the city of Jerusalem, remember in those days all of the agrarian work was done outside the walled cities and the people lived within those walls. Well, Jerusalem was broken down. The gates were burned with fire. So all of the people that normally worked in those fields were called and dispatched to build the walls in the city. So the fields that produced the food, the crops, lay dormant. Not much work was being done. Not much food was being produced. On top of that, you had enemies close at hand who would sneak into those fields and try to hinder the work of those crops growing. So there was a famine in the land. Second, there was a taxation issue. By the way, if you ever wonder if the Bible is relevant, this chapter fits like it's written today. Huge taxation problem. They were overtaxed, or at least they felt the tax burden. You see, Jerusalem, Judea, and all of Israel was still under Persian occupation. It was King Artaxerxes Longimanus who allowed Nehemiah to go back and rebuild those walls. He financed the project but he's going to make sure he gets it out of the people by imposing a tax burden that they had to pay back into the coffers of Persia. So there they are. Their food supply is down. There's a famine. They have a taxation problem. And on top of that, down in verse 5, the interest rates are high. The cost of borrowing money is on the rise. And there are large families without any food, without any money. Some own land. Some do not. Some are foreclosing on their property, and they have nothing to eat. This is called, by the way, in the Bible, usury. That is, adding interest that is exorbitant to your brothers, in this case, Jewish brethren. And so you are lining your pockets based on their need, their problem. And you also should know one of the reasons the Jews suffered 70 years of captivity was because of usury. The pre-exilic prophets like Jeremiah and Hosea and others denounced this kind of stuff. And I'm telling you all that because in, in the next couple of verses, you're going to read Nehemiah's strong reaction to this, and you need to know why. So before we even go any further, there's a couple of verses of Scripture I'd like you to turn to if you brought your Bible. If you're good with the thumb and you can turn the pages quickly, great. If you just want to write the reference down and not turn to it, but just whatever, whatever. So the first is Exodus chapter 22, verse 25. What I'm going to show you in the law of Moses, that's the the template, that's the document that governed their lives, the law of Moses that the law spoke about these two issues, the issue of lending and borrowing and the issue of slavery. Both of them were talked about. So I want you to get that framed before we move on. Exodus 22, verse 25, it says there in the law, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like the money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. The second is in Deuteronomy chapter 23, Deuteronomy 23, it's the fifth book, start with Genesis, go five blocks, that's Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19 and 20, Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20, you shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at an interest. To a foreigner, you may charge interest, isn't that good? But to your brother you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. There's there's three principles in those two verses of Scripture. Principle number one, it's okay to lend money to your Jewish brother. Number two, it's okay to lend money and exact interest on a foreigner, a non-Jew. Number three, it's not okay to collect interest from your Jewish brother. Okay, so that's one issue, borrowing and lending. The second is slavery. Now, remember, part of the complaints were, we have lost food and we don't have our lands anymore. We've even had to sell our children as slaves so that we can pay off debts. That's how bad it had gotten. So, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 25. This is the last scripture in the law I'll have you turn to. Probably. Leviticus chapter 25 beginning in verse 39, Leviticus 25, 39. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave, as a hired servant and a sojourner. He shall be with you and he shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. Remember, that was the 50th year. And he shall depart from you. Then he shall depart from you. He and his children with him and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. First principle, it was acceptable to give yourself to the lender in order to pay off debts. Number two, it was not acceptable to become a slave to your brother one Jew to another. You could work, you could exact a wage, you could pay off the debt, but you couldn't become a slave. Both of these laws, both of these issues have been violated by the Jews. So, with that in mind, look at the leader's reaction now. Verse 6. And I, this is Nehemiah, first person, speaking as he just heard this, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. His first reaction was irritation. He was angry. And it's a strong word. It's not a mild one. It means to seethe or to boil or to be incensed at. He is just hot under the collar. I became angry, seething angry. And he was mad for a good reason, wasn't he? He was angry not because he was having a bad governor day, a bad day out on the wall because his wife and he had a spat that morning and he's taking it out on everybody. He is angry for a good reason, a right reason, a righteous reason. He is angry because these people are willfully disobeying the written commandments of God that I just read to you. He knows it, they know it, and he's angry because of it. This is a good anger. This is a righteous indignation. Okay, do you remember when Nehemiah was back in Persia and he first heard of their plight, that the walls were burned with fire, the gates were burned with fire, the walls were unbuilt, and the people were distressed? What happened? What did Nehemiah do? He wept. He wasn't angry. He wept. He saw them as victims, victims of discouragement, victims of poverty. But now he has a different reaction. He's not weeping any longer. He's mad. He's torqued. Not because they're victims, because they're not anymore. They're not victims of poverty. They're viciously preying on one another, taking advantage of one another. And that's why I call this a righteous anger, a holy anger. By the way, there is a difference. There are certain times we're called to be angry. In fact, it's a commandment. Did you know that? Be angry, Ephesians 4 says. That's a commandment. Be angry and sin not. Princeton University's third president was one of the greatest intellects America ever produced. His name was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards uh, isn't known by most Christians as one of the great thinkers of America, though he was. He's written in secular books as being way up there in terms of his IQ and his ability to communicate and educate As I said, Princeton's third president. What he is most famous for among Christian circles is a sermon he preached called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which moved hundreds, thousands to repentance. And what's odd about it is that the sermon was um, not only a well-written sermon and filled with great conviction, but it was ironic because when Edwards preached it, he had poor vision. So he bent over his text. Like this. And so he didn't look at the congregation. He just did this for the whole sermon. And he had a monotone voice. A real kind of airy monotone. And he read it like that. And yet people in the midst of this sermon, because they were so convicted by this holy anger of a holy God against sin, they would beg him to stop. And they would crawl out in the middle of the island and and give their lives to Christ in repentance. It's an incredible period of time when he would preach that sermon. And so he spoke about and embodied in that message a holy anger. I'm telling you that because I want to give you a contrast. He had a daughter who had a temper, uncontrollable temper. And a young man wanted to court her. And he came to his house one day and said, I'm in love with your daughter. He said, you can't have her because he knew her temper. He said, but I love her. He goes, I don't care if you love her. You can't have her. But she loves me. He goes, I don't care if she loves you. You can't have her. And here's why. She's not worthy of you. He goes, what do you mean she's not worthy of me? I'm a Christian. She's a Christian. He said, young man, the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. (laughs) You might think, I know someone like that. (laughs) Don't say, I live with someone like that. There's a case between a man who embodied and preached a holy anger of God at sin and a girl who had an unholy temper tantrum. But there is a time for righteous anger. Jesus went into the temple, you know, twice in his ministry, at the beginning and at the end, and drove out the money changers with a whip of cords. He said, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. It was um, Martin Luther Who called this the anger of love? The anger. Now that's what Nehemiah has. Nehemiah is angry because of the way these people are treating their God. And when he hears about this kind of infighting, he's mad at what sin has produced, and it's a holy, righteous anger. I wonder if we're losing our capacity to get mad at the right things. Honestly, uh, somebody once coined a phrase called compassion fatigue. And uh, what he meant by that is that we're inundated with um, tragedies because of television. We see every night on the news. What's the newest earthquake? Tsunami, tragedy, Twin Towers falling, this earthquake, this terrorist attack, etc. And we see so much of it that our ability to respond in compassion gets less and less. And we get fatigued with it. It's life is normal. But I wonder if we're not getting anger fatigue. William Bennett wrote a great book, A Time for Outrage. And uh, we've sort of lost our capacity as believers to get angry at the right thing for the right amount of time and the right reason. Nehemiah was angry, and it's a good thing. He, w- he was angry because he was jealous for the glory of God. I think a person who may lack righteous anger is somebody who also lacks conviction and courage. But let's continue to read. He doesn't stop there. Verse 7. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers. Now, I just want you to notice that phrase. I think it's huge. After serious thought. If you have an old King Jimmy version, It says, then I consulted with myself. He was angry, but he didn't vent. He didn't shoot from the lip. He paused, collected himself, reasoned with himself. As one translation puts it, reflected on the matter. Before he did anything, he was silent. That's good. You know, there's power in silence. Okay, picture the scene. He hears what's going on, and he's getting angry. They can see him getting angry, and he just kind of goes like this probably. And he probably waited for a few moments. I'm sure he was praying. That's his style, as I've read so far. He probably paused, talked to God about it, collected his thoughts. And there was a powerful message in being silent for a few moments. It showed the crowd, this guy's thinking about what he's doing and what he's about to say. You've heard of or seen Marcel Marceau, some of you. One of the, called the world's greatest mime. He communicates to audiences around the world with pantomime. What's, what's interesting about Marcel Marceau, you probably never heard him before. You've seen him. You know, he's mastered four languages. He's a master debater at several topics. He could hold his own in any kind of uh, issue like that and setting like that. But he has chosen to communicate, not through words, but through facial expressions. And what he can do with facial expressions is what most people could never do with words. There is such an art to what he does, and he communicates with silence. And so he's quiet, he's silent, he's reserved, he collects himself, and then he speaks. That righteous anger is channeled into something thoughtful. What did James tell us? He said, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. So that's the local situation. Financial problems, taxation, interest rate, famine. There's a leader's reaction, indignation, deliberation. Now we finally come to really the bulk and the heart of this, and that is the loving solution. If we pick up in verse 7 and read down a little bit, He does something. Now there's a solution to this. And what does he do? Oh, it says he rebukes. He confronts them. Verse seven, after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers. I said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, now he's doing this publicly. Talk about accountability. According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and they found nothing to say. I think they heard his words and they just sort of hung their heads like busted. We are busted. Then I said, verse nine. What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? When you love somebody and they know you love them and they feel secure in your love, you can tell them anything you want. And they know that it's from your heart out of love. You're not retaliating. You accept them. They're important to you. And what you're sharing is something heartfelt. They're still secure in your love. You can tell them anything. And he, he tells them his heart. In verse 7, he accuses them of charging interest, usury to their Jewish brothers. In verse 8, he accuses them of this slavery issue, selling their brothers into slavery. They hung their head in silence. Verse 9, he accuses them of losing their distinctives. Ruining their testimony. I think that's an important verse. Look at it again. What, are you, what you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? In other words, here's you guys over here, lining your pockets, while those guys over there, the Gentiles, are looking at you guys over here and thinking, they're just like everybody else. Look at these guys. There's no difference between them. Nothing would thrill Sandballot and Tobiah more than knowing on this day or those days, the work stopped because there's infighting among the brethren. They're going, great. We did not even have to attack them. Just let them get mad at each other and they won't build. Let them have this strife and these problems among themselves and we don't have to attack them. We don't have to send terrorists in there like they had planned. We'll just let them fight it out. And the work was stops. Do you know who applauds the loudest when a church splits? You know who does? Unbelievers. They applaud the loudest. And Christians may have their reasons. And unbelievers go, yeah, I knew that would happen. You see, these Christians can preach love all day long. They just don't know how to do it. And I watched that when the Jimmy Swagger thing broke years ago. And then he was sued and others sued the guy who sued him. And then he sued those guys. And they were having Star Wars. And I remember a news article. You know what it was called? People who love. People who love. And they said, the greatest message preached by these televangelists is love. And yet, they're suing each other this week. They're looking for that stuff. When churches, when organizations, when Christians fight the enemies of God, love it. And that is why Nathan, when he pointed his finger at David after he had sinned, In committing adultery with Bathsheba, and David got, I'm so sorry. He goes, look, you're forgiven. But know this, by your deed, you've given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. You've given ammunition to the enemy. So, a direct confrontation. Verse 10 is startling. From a confrontation now is a confession. Here's Nehemiah. Nehemiah. I also, and I'm sure the crowd was startled because he's going to admit that he was, he's been part of it as well. I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. What I love about this is Nehemiah just doesn't do this. He realizes there's three pointing back at him, so he goes, I, I, I'm just as guilty. I've been a part of it too, me and my family. Let us stop this. The three hardest words for a husband to tell his wife, I was wrong. The three hardest words for a wife to tell her husband, I was wrong. Those are the three hardest words to tell anybody. We don't like to admit it. Nehemiah knew it was important that he share it. And so he says, I also, I was wrong. Confrontation and then personal confession. Verse 10, though, and 11 and on down to 13 begins the correction. He says in verse 11, Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses. Also, a hundredth of the money, the grain, the new wine, the oil that you have charged them. So they said, We will restore it, and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out, picture him, I shook out the fold of my garment. Can you see him? He didn't have one of these cool usher shirts on. He did that in front of him with his long flowing tunic. And he said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Whoa dramatic, even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. I like it when assemblies say, Amen. Amen? Amen. Very good. And praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. What happened here is a great model, template, example, illustration for any counselor, any mature Christian who wants to mentor or counsel another person going through problems. Number one, identify the problem specifically. That's what he did in verse 10. He calls it what it is. He names it. Let us stop verse 10. This usury. We got to stop it. The Bible calls this confession and to confess doesn't mean to just spout something out. It means to agree, to agree with God about our sin. That's what confession is. You know, a lot of people say, okay, well, God, if, if I've sinned, I'm sorry. If, don't bother praying. If you have, just say, I'm sorry for what I've done, and this is it. That's confession. Confess means to agree with God in what he says about sin and forgiveness. That's confession. And so, identify the problem specifically. Look at verse 11. Plan to correct it immediately. He says, please, or not please, restore now to them even this day. See the word now? You know what that means? In Hebrew, literally, now. (laughs) Pretty good, huh? I'm a scholar. I know those things. Now means now. It's an immediate thing. So identify the problem specifically. Plan to correct it immediately. He says, don't wait any longer. Do it now. Do you remember Pharaoh when Moses was going through all those plagues with him and there was the plague of the frogs that was invading the land and the frogs were in like the kneading trough and and in the beds in between the sheets and when they pull out the frying pans, there's a frog there and it got old and the people were complaining. It was a plague all over Egypt. And Pharaoh comes to Moses and he said, stop this plague. Please stop this plague. He goes, I'm going to call upon God. And he'll stop this plague because of your sin. And he says, when shall I ask the Lord to stop it? And it's the funniest text of scripture. One of them in the Bible. Pharaoh, you would think, would say, no. He says, tomorrow. That's revealing, folks. In other words, I want to sin just one more day. I'll quit tomorrow. It's sort of like a diet. I'll start tomorrow. No, you won't. You'll say that tomorrow and the next day. And so he puts it off. The thing is to correct it. There's no compromise with the flesh. When God reveals an area to us that is wrong, he wants you to deal with it now. In a Bible study, when God reveals something to you, he wants you to receive it now. When God shows you a bit of His glory, He wants you to respond to it now. And so He says, now. And it means now. Third, seek to establish accountability. Seek to establish accountability. Identify it specifically. Seek to correct it immediately. Establish accountability. These are three important principles in Christian work. And if you're a counselor, three important principles in counseling. Verse 12 and 13 so they said, we will restore it. We will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Nehemiah does something very strengthening to their faith. He calls upon them to make a public covenant. You're going to make a decision publicly. Publicly. In this day. And I'm going to have the priests here come. And they're going to give you an oath to say. And we're going to hear it from you publicly. And then he shakes out his garment publicly. And he calls others. God and men. Into this accountable situation. That's important. When there is behavior. Or attitudes that need to be stopped. It's best to seek accountability. Because we're masters at lying to ourselves. Oh I can handle this. I'll quit, I'll quit, I'll stop. And we start believing the lies. We need accountability. I have a friend who did something very important for himself. He's on this service on the the internet that every two weeks will send to me a report of sites on the internet he has visited. So if there's any questionable sites, the email will come and say, this user, so-and-so, has visited these sites. These two weeks. Here's some questionable ones. It gives a report. He's done that to several people. He wants to be accountable. He wants to overcome something. And I think that's a very important thing. Listen, if you want real, authentic Christianity, the kind that really is fulfilling, this is it right here. That kind of real accountability. And then the rest of the chapter. We'll finish it out quickly, I think, for our sake tonight, because I want to end with a few principles. I'm going to call this illustration, illustration. There is um, confrontation. There is personal confession. There is correction. We've seen that. But now, the rest of the chapter, what he does is puts himself out there as an example to the people, an illustration of the principle that he just gave them. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, From the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, so he's governor a long time, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people, took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, And we did not buy any land. My servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were a hundred and fifty Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep, also fowl, were prepared for me. And once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because of the bondage. It was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. He didn't take advantage of his position as governor. He was sacrificing. He was unselfish. And he could go to bed at night with a clear conscience. Clear conscience is a great and powerful tool in the hands of God. That's why Paul spoke about it so often. He said, I am clear in my conscience before God and before men. Okay, that's the chapter. In looking at all these verses, kind of working our way through it, I want to leave you with three principles. I've given you several principles as we've gone, but I want to just sort of synthesize it into three nuggets that this chapter brings out. Number one, God is honored. God is honored when we handle money wisely. God is honored when we handle money wisely. Taxation, famine, slavery, extortion, all of these put this crunch on God's people. Nehemiah calls for accountability, correcting the situation. God is honored when we handle money wisely. You know, the Bible says a lot about money. It does. I mean doesn't say as much as some preachers say about money. They say something about money every week. But the Bible does say an awful lot about money. Saving money, spending money, losing money, investing money. All of those are themes. In fact, did you know that one-sixth of the synoptics, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptics, one-sixth of Matthew, Mark, and Luke deals with money. Mostly from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible says an awful lot about money. Now, I want you to know something. The Bible doesn't say that it's a sin to be rich. And I've heard a, a verse of Scripture quoted, money is the root of all evil. And when I hear that, I think, I hope these, just, these people, sh- we should buy them a Bible. It'd be good to read that every now and then, because it doesn't say that. It didn't say money is evil. The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. This is what it says. For the love of money... Ah, see, it's the relationship to money. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That's exactly what it says. The love of money, it's our relationship to that and what it does to us. There's nothing wrong with having it, but there is something wrong if it whacks you and skews the way we think and we become in bondage to it. Solomon became in bondage to it. Achan became in bondage to it. Ananias and Sapphira got in bondage to it. Some of these people during the time of Nehemiah were in bondage to it. It can become a problem. That's why I've always loved what Martin Luther used to say. He said, there's three conversions that are necessary. Number one, conversion of the heart. Number two, conversion of the mind. Number three, conversion of the pocketbook. I know some people that third is not converted yet. It's still my money. Hey, it's not your money. And God can show you tomorrow <laughs> by taking it back. Some of you suffered through the stock market crash. Or in the 80s, the land crash in this part of the world. Where values were certainly suddenly turned topsy-turvy. So when we handle money wisely, God is honored. And I think the bottom line principle isn't what you own. It's who owns you. It's who owns you. Where your heart is, or your treasure is, Jesus said there, your heart will be also. Principle number two, personal sin affects your public testimony. Personal sin, let let, let me say it this way. Your personal sin can eventually, will eventually affect your public testimony. I say that because people say, well, you'll never really know. I keep it hidden and secret and it's late at night or it's when nobody sees it's in this back room and I'm doing this little practice and nobody will see it. Eventually, private sin affects public testimony. Remember, this entire chapter, there's not one bit of work that goes on on the wall. So far, there's been work gone on the wall in all of these chapters, save this one. You know the story of Jonah. He was a prophet. But he wanted to quit, didn't he? He wanted to be a nonprofit organization. <laughs> These things keep people awake. That's why I employ them. God called him to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he thought if they repent, then God will be merciful to them and I don't want God to be merciful to them. I hate him. I just wish he'd just burn them. So what does he do? It says he, he fled to go to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, up to this point, you think, it's just between him and God. It's an issue between God and this renegade prophet. You're right, until he got into somebody else's boat. Now he made it their problem. And a storm at sea affected not just Jonah, but them. And they were so afraid, they started praying to their gods. And finally they said, Whose fault is this? Who are you? And Jonah says, I've been disobeying Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. And they said, what? We know about this God. You didn't do that. You're like an idiot. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Okay, I'm paraphrasing a lot. (laughs) They threw him overboard. A runaway Christian, a disobedient Christian, is a menace To everyone in his path. That private personal sin between Jonah and God affected everybody in that boat. Even pagans. What a a bad witness, huh? A bad testimony. I remember thinking about this when I was on an airplane. We hadn't taxied yet. I just found my seat. I buckled the seatbelt. I was ready to go. I was taken off out of Albuquerque. This was a few years ago, and a few people walked on board. They recognized me and said, Oh, Pastor Skip, boy, it's so good to see you. I go, Oh, really? Thanks. He goes, No, no, it's so good to see you. See, I hate flying. I'm so afraid of flying. I'm afraid we're going to crash and there's going to be problems. But then I saw you. (laughs) And I feel like, Okay, it's okay, because Skip's on the plane. And I thought, She better hope I have a good relationship with God. Or it could be just the opposite, in lieu of what happened to Jonah, couldn't it? So personal sin can affect public testimony. Number three, and we'll close with this. The best correction involves both God and man. The best correction of problems we face involves both God and man. Typically, you come to a Christian counselor or a pastor and they say, let's just pray about it. That's good. We ought to do it. We have people after every service praying and during the week praying. Well, have you prayed about it? Well, let's pray about it right now. So we'll pray about it. And then God bless you. Pat on the back. See you later. That's good. That's important. That's where you start. But you don't stop there. You call God and man into account if you really want help from the body of Christ. That's how he designed us to overcome problem situations. And so we bring God and man into an account. Confess your sin to someone. The Bible says we should do that, doesn't it? Confess your faults one to another and you shall be healed. And When you find somebody that you can trust and make confession to and be real and be honest, you're miles ahead in your growth. And then there's that public commitment made to God. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, And he said, blessed are those who mourn. Not blessed are those who moan. Blessed are those who mourn. There is something liberating when you are willing to confess, I'm poor in this area, I'm weak in this area, and I mourn over this sin before God and even before people. Someone trustworthy, somebody close, somebody trusted It can be a wonderful experience to live in that kind of holy accountability. There was a politician who went into a photographer, got his proofs, walked out to the car, looked at his proofs, was disgusted at what he saw. thought the photographer didn't do a good job. And he went back into the front door and he said, you know, I demand my money back. These pictures don't do me justice. The photographer smiled and said, Sir, with all due respect, with a face like yours, you don't need justice. You need mercy. (laughs) Well, can I tell you, with a heart like mine, I don't want justice. I want mercy. I want mercy. And there's something liberating to look at one another and say, Okay, we're not perfect. We are sinners. And we can share the healing of a great Savior who has saved us. And we can share experiences that will help us grow. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a great time we've had. So great to be in a place where sounds of praise and worship ring from an auditorium. Where people gather whose hearts, some broken, some filled with great joy promise, ecstasy, and experiences of the weak, others beat up and downtrodden, fearful, can all gather together, all of us in our imperfection, but on that journey toward perfection, toward heaven. We can put our arms around each other. We can accept one another, pray for one another, and watch as we're healed. And I pray that that process would continue Whenever we gather in small groups throughout the week, women's ministry, men's retreats, midweek Bible study, Sunday. Lord, as we're growing as a community, may we grow in real depth and authenticity in a way that would bring glory to you. We just don't want to play church, we want to be your church. Thank you for your mercy. That eclipses your justice. Thank you that your justice was meted on the body of Christ. When his blood was shed for our sins. That we might be saved. And I pray for anyone in this room tonight that doesn't know you. Or would be listening to this message later on. Via cassette or CD or or watching on the internet. If they don't know you that they'd make a commitment to you.